The Lord be with you. Well, thank you so much. That was very sweet of you. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Thanks again for coming. And uh, if you are joining us on the podcast, I hope that you are experiencing much better audio now that I figured out. Literally, it was it was picking up the microphone from my from my pants from my rear. So that's why you come, but then you hear this sound. So hopefully, hopefully that has been fixed. I didn't have to do that last time, so I'm blaming Apple. Their updates are a mess. Um, We're going to dive into the Gospel of John, where we're going to open with prayer, because that's what we do. So let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful day, especially thank you for the rain yesterday. Uh, Thank you for the ways that you continue to nurture us and inspire us like that rain and like the sun today, that we are constantly growing, always learning, uh, never stopping in our journey of... uh, of learning what it means to be a follower of yours. Bless this hour we have today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so today we are doing a deep dive into the Gospel of John. This is, this, is the, this is the book that I spent an entire semester in seminary learning, and we're going to do it in 60 minutes. So, um, so there we go. Um, as we have been talking about the Gospel of John is very different from the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are what? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right. Um, and one of the things that's really important, I mean, to a degree, all of the go- none of the Gospels are intended to be historical accounts. Like, they're not biographies of Jesus' life. They are telling the story of a community of faith, and we're learning about that community of faith through the retelling of Jesus's life. You understand what I'm saying? But of all of, of all of them, John is the most of that. All right, it says less about the life of Jesus and more about this community of Christians that existed around the turn of the first century, uh, and we call them Johannine Christians. So. The way that the Gospel of John tells the story of Jesus, we learn a lot. Uh, we learn an awful lot about this early community of Christians, and their philosophy, and their theology, and their understanding of of Jesus and and who Jesus was for them. Um, John has a very high view of Jesus, and by very high view, what I mean is that it it is of all four Gospels, it accentuates Jesus's divinity um, over. His humanity, um, and we'll get to what that means and, and instances of that. Um, there's a lot of use of symbolic languages and and symbols in John that we'll get to again. Um, but but just to ke- to keep in mind again that as it's telling the story of Jesus, it's not the story of Jesus that is most important, but what it what this community of early Christians and what they thought about Jesus that we're really getting at. The purpose of the gospel is basically to inspire the readers to have faith in Jesus' divinity. That's really what this gospel is all about and what was important amongst that early Christian community. Um, miracles, we, we, we know that Mark highlights a lot of miracles um, that, were, that were about... Uh, leading us up to the death and resurrection when we realize that Jesus is the Son of God. But here, they are seen as signs. Um, and that's actual word that John uses. 
and they are more than any of the other gospels and miracles are proving Jesus's divinity. That's what that's what John does, which is I think the way we tend to see the miracles is that's what they're for, but it depends on what gospel you're reading. In John, their purpose is to with each passing miracle to further prove the divinity of Jesus and word made flesh. And we're going to talk about what that whole word made flesh thing is in a little bit. Um, we the, the Apostle John is not the person who wrote the Gospel of John. Um, in the same way that John is a very common name in our society today, it was a common name back then. So the, gospel, the, the disciple John lived and died some 50, 75 years before this Gospel was written. So again, it's, just, it's a John. So who is this John? This is just a John. Just a John. Just a John. A dude named John around the turn of the century. Okay. Exactly. Um, so that's just something to happen. All right. Cookie was in here earlier. I did a test run of this video and it worked when she was in here. So I'm, I'm betting on the fact that because she is still here, that it will work. I'm just to verify that. There, there you go. That's right. That I'm not just, just making it up. So, uh, this is a few minutes video, just kind of a, of a, of some people talking about the gospel of John that I, I find fascinating. I swear it was working. It was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The fourth and last gospel now contained in the New Testament is the Gospel of John, written about 70 years after the death of Jesus. It is the story of a community where the relationship between Christians and Jews has become more virulent, almost to the point of breakdown. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the fourth gospel, Jesus is a very serene figure who uh, can uh, speak at length uh, about uh, matters divine. Uh, A very different kind of speech from the speech we hear in the synoptic gospels, which is usually much more pithy, much more directed, much more witty. In John, it's reflective and uh, revelatory. John's Gospel is different from the other three in the New Testament. That fact has been recognized since the early church itself. Uh, Already by the year 200, John's Gospel was called the spiritual gospel precisely because it told the story of Jesus in symbolic ways that differ sharply at times from the other three. Let me compare Mark with John to explain how two Gospels do it differently. In, we call it the agony in the garden. Now, there is no agony in John, and there is no garden in Mark, but we call it the agony in the garden because we put them together. Mark tells a story in which Jesus, the night before he dies, is prostrate on the ground, begging God if this all could pass, but I will do what you want, and the disciples all flee. Now, that's, a, that's an awful picture. That makes sense to me because Mark is writing to a persecuted community who, knows, who know what it's like to die. That's how you die, feeling abandoned by God. Over to John. Jesus is not on the ground in John. The whole cohort of the Jerusalem forces come out, 600 troops come out to capture Jesus, and they end up with their faces on the ground in John. 
and Jesus says, of course I will do what the Father wants, and Jesus tells them to let my disciples go. He's in command of the whole operation. You have a Jesus out of control almost in Mark, a Jesus totally in control in John. Both gospel. Neither of them are historical. I don't think either of them know exactly what happened. Jesus dies on a different day in John's gospel than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the three synoptic Gospels, Jesus actually eats a Passover meal before he dies. In John's Gospel, he doesn't. The Last Supper is actually eaten before the beginning of Passover. So here's the scene in John's Gospel. The day leading up to Passover is the day when all the lambs are slaughtered and everyone goes to the temple to get their lamb for the Passover meal. In Jerusalem, this would have meant thousands of lambs being slaughtered all at one time. And in John's Gospel, that's the day on which Jesus is crucified. So that quite literally, the dramatic scene in John's Gospel has Jesus hanging on the cross while the lambs are being slaughtered for Passover. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus doesn't eat a Passover meal Jesus is the Passover meal. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my mortal flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. But the idea of drinking blood is absolutely abhorrent to Jewish dietary regulations. So the very language and the symbolism that is so rich within John's Gospel also has a decidedly political tone to it in terms of the evolving relationship between Jews and Christians. Throughout the Roman Empire, Judaism itself was evolving. The role of the synagogue was changing from a meeting place to a place of worship. Worship in the synagogue increasingly centered on Torah as the Word of God. But John's community saw Jesus as the Word of God, and for this conviction, they would be forced out of the synagogue. The Jews had agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. As I read John, I come to two conclusions. One is that this is a Jewish group. If you want to call them Christians, they're Jewish Christians. They're one group within Judaism. The second conclusion is that they are being more and more marginalized. That is, their appeal to lead all of Judaism is becoming less and less likely. They're becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And they can refer to their other, their fellow Jews as the Jews. They are feeling profoundly alienated from their own Judaism. In plain language, they're losing. And that means the language of invective gets nastier and nastier. The Jews answered him, Abraham is our father. 
Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. You are from your father, the devil. So Mark talks about the crowd being against Jesus, but by Matthew, 15 years later, say in year 85, it's all the people, and by the time you get to John in the 90s, it is the Jews who are against Jesus. The conflict between Jews and Christians that John described in his story of Jesus was still a local experience, but it soon would be swept up in the rising political conflict between Jews and Romans over Roman rule in Jerusalem. The relationship between Judaism and Christianity after the turn of the second century would become more and more hostile as time went on, partly because of other political forces that continued to develop. In the year 132 of the Common Era, Jerusalem bristled with rumors that the Emperor Hadrian planned to rebuild the city and the temple dedicating it to Jupiter, the patron god of the city of Rome. For many Jews, this was an abomination worthy of divine vengeance. The political expectations of apocalyptic did not simply die out after the first revolt. Some people, both within Christian tradition and within Jewish tradition, still expected a cataclysmic event to bring a new kingdom on earth soon. Behold, the days are coming, and it will happen when the time of the world has ripened and the harvest of the seed of the evil ones and the good ones has come. Within 60 years after the first revolt, there would arise a new rebellion. We typically call this the second Jewish revolt against Rome or the Bar Kokhba revolt. And it's named after a famous rebel leader who really becomes the central figure of this new political period. He's called Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba was a pseudo-messiah, supported by large segments of the population. He claimed to be a descendant of King David. He claimed to be the Messiah himself and was supported by none other than one of the major figures of the day, Rabbi Akiba. So this war was very different. It was a millennial revolt. It was a messianic revolt. And it touched chords that were not touched in the first revolt. The Earth's inhabitants and its rulers will hate one another and provoke one another to war. Apparently he did take Jerusalem for some time. And coins are found now that say uh, the year one of the redemption of Israel. They really think they have established the new kingdom. You might think that there would never be another war like the first war. But the second war with Rome, the Bar Kokhba War, was probably even worse than the first war. Even though Jerusalem wasn't destroyed, the devastation might have even been greater.
some people in the Second Revolt tried to press other Jews, including Christians, into the revolt, saying, come join us to fight against the Romans. You believe God is going to restore the kingdom to Israel, don't you? Join us. But the Christians by this time are starting to say, no, he can't be the Messiah. We already have one. Not long ago, in these inaccessible cliffs, only a few miles from the fortress of Masada, archaeologists hit on a discovery that has finally revealed the ultimate fate of Bar Kokhba and his followers. Apparently, the rebels that followed Bar Kokhba hid in these caves during the last stages of the war. But we know that the Romans knew where they were and simply camped up on top of the hill waiting for them to starve to death or come out and give up. Rubble from the Roman lookout post is still there, blocking the only escape route. One of the caves is called the Cave of Horrors, and it contains over 40 skeletons of men, women, and children who preferred to die rather than give in to the Romans. Another cave is called the Cave of Letters, and in it were found uh, caches of pottery and coins and other things of daily life. Kind of a weird place to stop, but I think we'll hit the pause button there. Um, it, it, it sort of segued, you might have noticed, it segued from sort of a, a synopsis of the Gospel of John to sort of the socio-political landscape that was kind of going on around the time of the turn of the first, end of the first century and into the second. I don't know if anybody kind of saw, saw that happening. Anybody familiar with any of that stuff they were talking about? Because that stuff was always, that stuff was kind of new to me. It's not covered in the Bible, so to speak, but it is what's happening at the time that this particular book was being written and talked about, so I, I find it kind of interesting to uh, go into, so... Any thoughts or questions about any of that? When it broadens, I don't know that there's a lot that I can answer, but um, um, something to work at. And my PowerPoints are being a little funky here, so I apologize for that. Um, so <clears throat> let's go back to circle back to talking about the Gospel of John. And let me grab my um, microphone <laughs> so that the audio is still permissible. Um, so what is it that makes, uh, moving along in the PowerPoint, what is it that makes the Gospel of John unique? Um, unlike Matthew and Luke, who we know used Mark as a resource, John gets his own stuff. Um, he's using an entirely different library, if you will. Um, he does not use it as any kind of resource. Uh, another, another part that's different is there's no birth story. Um, we don't find it in Mark. Anyone remember why we don't find one in Mark? Remember, there was an immediacy to the story that he was telling, and the, and the, bio, the, the birth story just did not seem like it was important enough to mention. Um, we don't get a birth story in John per se, but what we get <clears throat> is this, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, which we'll look at in more detail in a second. Um, there's no temptation story in the desert. One would presume because the Jesus of the Gospel of John doesn't need it, I guess. 
Um, the other thing we find in John is that in John, he delivers these long speeches that are very philosophical, very heady, and they are usually about his own nature and how he understands and defines himself. And what's notable in this is that this is reflective of something that would have very likely happened in this community of Christians, in this Johannine community of Christians. They would have loved to have had long philosophical debates and conversations about the nature of Jesus Christ. They would have really gotten into that. So they have, it's not surprising that the Jesus in John's gospel does that. Um, there's really no tie back to the Mosaic Law or any Hebrew uh, directives. And part of the reason, you might have picked up a little bit from some of the discussion of, of the, the, the friction that was existing between this particular community of Christians and being sort of marginalized by the larger body of uh, the Jewish faith and, and, uh, and the, the, even, even within that larger Jewish faith, those who were seeking to follow Jesus, the Johannine community was an even smaller subset of that. So there's no real tie back to, like we find in Matthew, where there's very, very much a direct tie back to uh, the, the, the uh, Hebrew Bible. The only commandment that we find in, in, the, in, in John of any real substance is to love, which is certainly not a bad commandment, but there's, it's, it's not being tied back to any of its history. There's no prediction of the downfall in Jerusalem, which we find in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, and there's minimized expectation for Jesus' second coming. That's just not something that the Joachim community was as invested in as some of the other early Christian communities. Okay? And there's no agony before the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, and, and one of the writers, uh, one of the guys that mentioned, talked about the, the, the spectrum. You know, you got Mark at one end and John at the other. And Mark's gospel, remember, Jesus is in the garden freaking out. And here, it's just another day in the office for Jesus kind of thing. So it's very different understanding. Um, another thing that makes John real unique is the I am sayings. You ever noticed that before in the Gospel of John? Or if you remember hearing I am, Jesus saying I am this, it, it it's, comes from John. Uh, Jesus is referring to himself, maybe intentionally, maybe not. Uh, they, they sort of uh, um, harken back to what uh, God said to Moses in Exodus, I am who I am. Remember when God, when Moses asked God, you know, who should I, when God says, go do all this stuff, and and, and Moses says, well, they're going to they're want to know who told me to do this because they're not going to listen to if it comes from me. Who should I say you are? He's asking for his business card. <laughs> and God says, tell him I am who I am. Okay. So we sort of find that hearkening back in here. And some of them, we get this long list. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I usually will recite that passage at funerals. Um, and I am the resurrection and the life. So, um, and again, these are, these are oftentimes uh, couched in and around one of these long philosophical discourses where Jesus is talking about himself. 
Um, and again, you see how it's different than the other Gospels. In the other Gospels, Jesus is doing a lot of things, and not that he's not doing them in John, but the highlight, the thing that gets a lot of the press time in John, is Jesus talking about himself. Because again, that's what the community would have done. So these I am sayings, when we find them, they are almost always from the Gospel of John. So the work of the paraclete, paraclete is another word for Holy Spirit, um, is undergirds this philosophical understanding of Jesus, that Jesus is more than just a historical figure. His existence... Um, I mean, his life, let me uh, appreciate Sally and Sally letting us know that they're um, here. I'm talking about something written on the board in here for those of you who um, are listening in. But let me kind of let me kind of get at what is going on here. In the Gospel of John, this is earth, all right? And this is the life span of Jesus. So I know this is not exactly, but just imagine 0 and 33 BCE. Jesus is somewhere up here. I'm not necessarily meaning heaven but just somewhere not on earth. He is existing already. And when he hits this, comes down, and he's here. And then here, he goes back up. This is sort of the way that the Johannine community understood the existence of Jesus. There is is a pre-eternal Jesus and a post-eternal Jesus, and for this very limited time period, this eternal Jesus takes on a human form. Um, I mean, and, 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 and John, the Johnian community would have understood Jesus as there's a person walking around here, flesh and bone, but it is more of a symbol or a, or a, a construct in the human form because really the, the real Jesus is the one that's before and after, and just for 33 years kind of took on human form to be with us. Um, so, and that's different from, from a Mark view of Jesus, but this is very particular to John. So an immortal being who still inhabits and accomplished this is via the paraclete. Um, and I, this, is, this is a passage that I do a lot in my funerals where, I, where Jesus is talking to his disciples prior to his crucifixion and resurrection and said, I'm getting ready to leave you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will, the helper will come and be with you and will sustain you through this time period. So that's what he refers to, translating his Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. And the paraclete's function is to define Jesus' glory both in its heavenly origin and its continuing presence on earth. So when Jesus is resurrected and goes back to the form where he had been before, there will be something of Jesus that remains on earth here to continue going forward with this joining community and with the world kind of thing. So, I mean, we're, we are talking some fairly heavy philosophical stuff. I get that. Um, but that's, that's a big part of what it is. 
Um, but so that's what we were, when you say the Holy Spirit, that's what we're talking about? According to the Gospel of John. According yes. to John. Luke and, Luke and Acts might have something a little different way to understand it, but according to John, it is the, the presence of Jesus beyond his earthly life because Jesus is no longer here, he's here kind of thing, according to John. Luke and Acts would have a little bit of a different take on it. Um, as we were doing with all the Gospels, just sort of a helpful uh, outline. Uh, the, you know, the first half of the book is the book of the signs, which we're going to look at in a second. Then we have the book of glory, um, which is a lot of the philosophical diatribes and that sort of thing. And then the rest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection story uh, at the end, of course. Okay. All right, um, we get this marvelous, beautiful, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. And then he goes on a little further, and another character is introduced, and who is it? Who's the one that comes next? It's talked about in this intro. There was a man, his name was... John, right. John the Baptist, right. So it goes in there very clear. John is not the one. He's pointing to it, but he's not the one. But he's pointing to it. But just to be clear, he's not pointing. He's not the one. I mean, John, the writer makes that very clear. But we, it, it, what I think is important for us to understand is that this beautiful poetry, the beginning of the Gospel of John that we are so used to because we've grown up with it, it would have come out of left field to a person living around Jesus' time or soon after. And the reason is because this is like Greek philosophy um, at its height that just would not have been part of the worldview of a, of a first century Jew. The, the Greek word for word was logos. Um, and logos is a philosophical term of the Stoics that sort of hints at pr principle of cosmic reason that guides and sustains the universe. So we're talking high level sorts of out there kinds of things, N which none of this is anything that a good Jew in that time frame would have, it would not have resonated with at all. Um, Philo Judeus was a Jewish scholar who lived during the first century that was sort of became a bridge of this kind of thinking between what we would call Christian theology and Greek philosophy, heavily influenced by Greek philosophy as a Jewish scholar. And what he tried to do was to reconcile the, the Hellenistic logic. Hellenistic is another word for Greek, right? The Greek logic with the traditional Jewish concept of wisdom. So if you remember back those of you who took Old Testament and remembered sort of the the, the part of, of our of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that was very philosophical, which was the wisdom literature, Job and Ecclesiastes and some of those kinds of things. So Philo Judeus was trying to uh, reconcile that history, that tradition, that Jewish tradition with this Greek philosophy, he was trying to sort of find points of connection. That's what he was doing. And in the Greek, he referred to it with the term logos. Yes? Do you think he was one of the authors? Do we delve into that at all? Um, it's a good question. I don't know that there's any 
Yeah. I mean, I think what, what he did is he was trying, he, part of his work spurred on this Johannine community out, out of which the writer, among other people, came. I mean, I think that's probably a way to look at it. Um, John latches on to the work that followed Judeus did, so more than likely not him, and identifies Jesus with what Philo would have understood as Logos. So Philo Judeus kind of had this understanding, and John, the writer of John, said, yes, and Jesus on earth is the Logos. Um, that's, that's, that's what Philo, Judeus, and others were kind of talking about and referring to, made human. Um, and that is a way to understand it. John would understand it is that Jesus on earth is the physical embodiment of God's wisdom. Okay? Uh, Jesus himself is the incarnate symbol of God, the eternal word that's giving life to humankind. So this line up here represents Logos, as Philo Judeus and the Johannine community would have understood it. And that Logos, I mean, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That's chapter 1, verse, what is it? 14. 14, yeah. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, right? Full of grace and truth, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So that, that verse right there is describing according to this philosophical understanding and this marriage of Greek philosophy and, 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 and Jewish wisdom literature is, is sort of the way that they understood it and perceived it. Okay? So Jesus is preexistent and eternal, which to us, we might say, well, duh, right? But the reason that that is duh for us is because of the influence of John on our Christian faith over the past 2,000 years. Um, a good Jew who was a follower of Jesus may not have understood it, probably did not understand it like this, particularly if they were part of the audience that Matthew or Mark or Luke was writing to. Okay? So that's some heady stuff. All right, just to understand the uniqueness of John. Um, in the Gospel of John, it is organized around, and it ta- when, it, when it recounts Jesus' ministry, Jesus' work in the world, it orients around seven miracles, and, and John refers to them as signs. So they are more than just miraculous acts. They are miraculous acts with a purpose, and that purpose is of showing Jesus' divinity and this to the world, okay? Um, Probably not surprisingly, they're surrounded by long discourses and dialogues, including all those I am saying. So so it's sort of sandwiched in on either side with these long discourses. Um, They are meant, the signs are meant to basically show that Jesus is the Word made flesh, that Jesus, this pre-existent, eternal Jesus, the Jesus here is this Jesus up here, okay? So, um, these are the seven signs we're going to go over here in a minute. Uh, would someone like to take the first one? I'm going to ask you to read in a second. Helen, thank you. Who wants to take 443 through 54? Warren, 5, 2 through 9. Louise, 6, 1 through 15. I'm sorry, Marty. 
All right, 6, 16 through 25. All right, Betty, the last two were super long, so we're going to summarize them. Okay? All right. Helen, would you read 2, 1 through 12, please? On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become it that had become wine and didn't know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water new. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his sons, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. All right. So Jesus is going to a wedding with his mom, who he refers to as what? A woman. A woman. woman. Right. Which, to me, is a is John's way of of sort of only a Jesus who was not fully human and was sort of this pre-existent eternal Jesus. Only a Jesus like that would refer to his mom as a woman, right? So it's almost highlighting that aspect of John's Jesus. Um, Wedding celebrations back then would go on for days and days and days. It wasn't just a three-hour affair. Um, They ran out of wine, which was pretty unheard of. must have been some big party goers. And we get this whole thing about, oh, first of all, so um, some of our Baptist friends um, will, who, who, I don't know if there are many of these anymore, but, you know, that, that are sort of, you know, no alcohol kind of thing, will say, well, it wasn't wine. It was grape juice they changed it to. So I'm here to say that this was not grape juice because that physically is not possible. If, I'm just, I don't know if, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm preaching to the choir on this, but just in case, there's no grape juice in the Bible. Um, there's, there's this wonderful thing about, you know, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine. Everyone serves the, the craft beer first, and then when everyone's good, they bring out the Bud Light, you know. Um, but you've, like, done the opposite. Um, so Jesus like that. So, um, so it's, it's interesting because, it, it, first of all, it demonstrates that Jesus is miraculous. He turned water into wine. That's a pretty stellar thing. Um, he, but also the fact that even though he is this preexistent eternal Jesus who just is sort of in human form for these 33 years, he also is a Jesus who is with the people in the in, the, in the, the, the thick of their lives, something as simple and yet profound as a wedding celebration, right? So that is interesting. It, 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 it's, 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 a, it's a different take when we have this preexistent eternal Jesus that goes on these long dialogues with himself, monologues rather, about his philosophical nature that he can also be something as simple as, yeah, you need some more wine for your wedding, I'll hook you up. So 
It's a fun story. That in the Gospel of John, Jesus begins his ministry at a wedding making more wine. So that's kind of neat. Um, 43 through 54 in chapter 4. After the two days, he departed to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was living. So he asked them the hour when he began to mend, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he, was, when he had come from Judea to, to Galilee. So you see how John himself at the very, very end is cluing us in. Just in case you didn't catch it, this is sign number two, right? Which is good. That's, it, 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 he's, he's got this thing lined up in his head, and he wants to lay it and make sure we understand it. So it was obviously significant that it was the son of a Roman, i.e. a non-Jew, that Jesus cured. And so it demonstrates that in this sort of descending into human form for these 33 years, he's not just doing it for a particular group of people. He's doing it for everybody. Um, and... Signs and wonders, as mentioned in 48, according to John, that's the hinge on which people discover belief, is they see miraculous and wonderful things, and that is key to them understanding. That's different than the other Gospels. Um, It's more about relationship and about ministry than it is about being wowed kind of a thing. I mean, down down to the point of, when was it that it was healed? Well, it was one in the afternoon. That's right when Jesus told me. Man! So we get that sort of feeling there from John. Um, And there's another instance in Luke we talked about last week where the two miracles, the one that interrupted, and it was the Jairus' daughter. Same sort of thing here. The the, the person is healed without Jesus being physically there. Now, that's another thing. Jesus was there for that. There was another time Jesus wasn't there, and that doesn't matter because it's Jesus. All right? Cripple Man, chapter 5. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew term Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith to him, Wilt thou be made whole? 
The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. How far? Oh. Uh, verse 9, yeah. Uh, Jesus saith to him, Rise, take up the bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took his bed and walked. Is that the key? And on key? the same day was the Sabbath. Okay. And that was King James? Church. It was like verse. Yeah, it is King James. Yeah, verse yeah. three. Like your verse three went on forever. That was that was interesting. I kept on reading down. Translations are different. Many sick people coming to Jesus, so the word is spreading of him. Uh, what was it that Jesus asked in verse six? It's notable. Do you want to be made well? Yeah. Um, do you want to be made well? Your your translation, Louise said what? Verse 6, the question. Uh, wilt thou be made whole? Yeah, wilt thou be made whole? Anybody got anything? Interesting. Do you want to recover? Do you want to recover? Uh, do you want to be healed? Yeah, do you want to be healed? Right. Which is my straight forward. Right, right, right. Why do you think Jesus asked that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He'd been sick a long time, or ill, or... Thirty and eight years. Yeah. Because he wanted to grant um, what the man wanted. He wanted to fulfill and do what the man wanted him to do. And he wanted may- to make sure that the man cared and wanted to be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe the man doesn't want to be healed. Yeah. Why would he be lying there? Well, maybe, I mean, he's 38 years. Maybe he's just like, this is kind of the way it is. Maybe he gotten used to it. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I, I, this is sort of a side question because it's not really pertinent. But it, 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 I think sometimes we, we see something wrong and we jump in and fix it without figuring out if the people who we are fixing or the situations we're fixing are yeah. right. So it's, it's, a, it's a basic question we forget. <laughs> yeah, sometimes because we have our own, we, we put on it our own whatever, right? So I just, I just find that interesting. Um, in John Strong's book about the Gospel of John, the 38 years referred, and I can't remember what it referred to, it wasn't a it wasn't, it was there as a sign. Going it back to kind of those signs and symbols, the symbolic imagery the, and things like that. situation mm-hmm. or something, I'll have yep. to go back and read that. Yep. It was not just put in as a detail. Right, it. right, there was something particular about it that maybe mm-hmm. a Johannine community member would read that and went, ah, Okay, I see what's going on now. Really but, want it changed in your right, society. but everybody else is like, okay, 38 years, all right. Yeah. Glad it wasn't 39. You know, yeah, so that sort of thing. Yeah, so the, that goes back to that when, before we were talking about there's a lot of symbolism in, in, the, in the Gospel of John that we don't necessarily connect with. Um, we have some Jewish officials, maybe Pharisees, that were upset at Jesus, went against the Torah law, so we start finding that thing. And again, the joining community was kind of at odds in a lot of ways with the Jewish community they were living in. So this would have been a common thing for them that they would have imagined Jesus would have fed. Um, Feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. Who is going to read that one? I was, and one of the verses... 1 through 15. Okay. Well, after this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. The signs, more, right? making it obvious. 
Jesus went up the mountain and sat there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? And Jesus said, Well, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, That is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Thank you. So the only miracle that's on all four Gospels that's recounted, um, symbolizing Jesus is providing spiritual nourishment for the world. So this isn't just about feeding food. Um, this is about spiritual nourishment. And there's this neat little line here. I don't know if you caught it. Um, verse 5, when he looked up and saw the large crowd, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus said this to test him, for he himself already knew what he was going to do. So that's different. We don't get that. That's one of the things that John adds in there. It's like Jesus already knows what's going to happen, knows how he's going to do it, whatever. We don't find that in the other Gospels, okay, um, which is interesting. Uh, I love the thing at the end. Anyone ever knew that they were going to make Jesus king? I did not. Yeah, that kind of slid in there, right? People were going to make him king, which is similar to what the, they did to Gideon in the Old Testament. You remember from Old Testament class with Gideon after he defeated the armies are like, hey, become king. And Gideon was like, no, 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 you're missing the whole point. That's not what I'm going to do. So Jesus physically removes himself so he doesn't have to deal with that. I find that interesting. Yeah. King James Version has the men sitting down. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, right. I think, I, think, I think it says men meeting all people because you referred to all people as men when you were talking to a big group. But, yeah, that would be... Awkward. <laughs> um, six sixteen through twenty five. Okay, that was the um, right after the feeding of the five thousand. Yep. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which he, the, his disciples had entered 
and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And you can stop there, that's fine, I'm in probably 24, yeah, thank you. All right, so it comes immediately after the feeding of 5,000. Jesus goes to the aids of his disciples who were on a boat in a rough storm, um, demonstrates power of Jesus' power of nature. So have you noticed where it's signed five now? Have you noticed how each of the miracles is getting more amazing and that more people are seeing them? So if you think of Jesus turning water into wine, at a wedding, all the way to sign four, which was feeding 5,000 people. And then this, which is with the disciples walking on water, and what we're also getting ready to see coming up. Each, and this is the way that the writer, the Gospel of John, the writer, designs it, is that with each of the signs, they get more powerful, more amazing. They build on the other into the, the big one that's coming up in a couple. So, um, restoring a sight to a blind man. I hate that we can't read this. It, it is a marvelous story where Jesus heals a blind man by, by spitting in the mud and rubbing mud in his eyes. And then the man gets questioned um, because he's going around telling people he's been healed and the Pharisees and others are saying no. And he's like, but there's this amazing dialogue where the more that the Pharisees talk, the stupider they look. And the more that the man talks, the better he looks. So it's, it's just, you start really seeing this sort of inverse of the power and the way that it is set. But they go to like the guy's parents. And like, we know he's lying. He hasn't been blind from birth. And they're like, well, listen, go talk to him. He'll tell you. Anyway, it's just this really funny thing that I wish we could get into. But um, <clears throat> it was common back then for people to think that if people suffered physically, it meant that there was, they had some kind of sin or sin in their family. Jesus heals a blind man with sort of spit and dirt. I mean, that's the basic kind of a thing. But if you get a chance, read through it. Um, oh, wait, I'm sorry, there was more. Pharisees questioned the man twice as to whether he was actually blind. The more they speak, the more clueless they seem, the more in touch the former blind man seems. And then blindness becomes a metaphor at this point. It's not, it's, it's not just about the man who couldn't be able to see who now see. The blind man is now the Pharisees. They're the ones that cannot see the signs, right? So somebody's been healed of blindness and somebody has become blind in the story is kind of the way that it's told, right? Sign number seven, last one, and of course, as we know, building up to the act of raising Jesus, but... Jesus, the final most spectacular sign in this narrative, uh, Jesus is the source of everlasting life. This is where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is that I am saying. Um, we find Jesus very personal. Um, despite the fact that he's this pre-existent eternal Jesus and you're in human form, he mourns the loss of his friend Lazarus. Shortest verse in the entire Bible. Anybody know it? Jesus. Yep, very good. Okay, great. Ah, there we go. Said it. Um, and this and this was the last straw for the Jewish opposition, because they were so terrified that that Jesus raised a man. They're like, 
we have to take him out. He can't keep on going. When you bring somebody back to life, they were terrified with that. So those seven signs keep building up to this part of the story, which is sort of the book of glory. We're going to have to zip through this. But we have more, more monologues, the farewell speeches, 13 through 17 at the Last Supper. This is where Jesus talks the most about himself. Okay, um, And we do not have the breaking of the bread and all that kind of stuff like we do in the synoptics. Instead, we have Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Um, we have Gethsemane, very different picture. Like I was saying before, Jesus is not really faced. He doesn't dread what's coming. It's just all part of what's supposed to be. Um, we have Judas portraying Jesus in here. And then the post-resurrection, um, the Doubting Thomas story is, is, is part of the Gospel of John. And this, this was an important narrative for the Jonian community because... Um, this is kind of the kind of response that the Joannine community anticipated from those who encountered the signs. Is unless I see this from Jesus and this from Jesus, I will not believe. And remember what um, Jesus says to Thomas when he does see? You remember how it finishes up? Bless those that believe and don't see. Exactly. So, I mean... That is, that is John's Jesus speaking directly to the Johannine community. Because remember, this is 90, 100 CE. None of the people in this community had ever seen Jesus, had been close to seeing Jesus. So the Downing Thomas thing was probably something pretty common. You know, I, 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 I don't know that I can believe this. And now you got Jesus saying, Blessed are those who haven't seen me and still believe. So... That would have resonated deeply with the joining community, okay? Uh, and then we get the whole thing of, of, of Peter at the breakfast and, you know, um, Jesus asking Peter three times, do you love me? Kind of symbolic of the three times Peter denied him and all that kind of stuff. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep. So there's, they kind of bridge that gap, okay? So in summary, last gospel written different from the other three, provides us with the doctrine of Jesus' pre-human existence as God's eternal logos and the whole idea of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, that's going to continue the work of Jesus when Jesus sort of returns to his logos state. And then again, this book, more than anything, reflects the understanding of this early Christian community. So next, any questions as we zip through the Gospel of John? Yes. About the video, did he say that the crucifixion, according to John, was on that Thursday and not Friday? He said it was a different day. He did. Yeah, he said he said it was on a different day. He said it, it was timed to when the Passover lambs would have been slaughtered. I don't know if he specifies a day of the week like Mark does, mm-hmm. um, but it was it was more symbolically about it being tied to when the lambs of the synagogue were slaughtered. Because that, yeah, because that sort of is what Jesus, he pictures Jesus as serving that purpose. The final sacrifice, if you will. Yeah. Any other questions? Next week, we will compare all four Gospels 
We'll do a quick little thing on the quest, what's called the quest for the historical Jesus, and then we'll jump into a little bit of Acts. All right? Great. Go in peace. Thank you all very, very much, as always.